Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the future of biotech. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm really fortunate today to be joined by David Mace, also known as Mace of SwiftScale Bio. He's the CEO and co-founder there. Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. So, you know, maybe to kick us off, Mace, it would be great if you could perhaps uh, give us a little bit of your background, how you got to where you are today, and then we can go from there. I was at Caltech studying the intersection of computer science and biology. After that, I went to Facebook uh, to work on machine learning, and I was also at IBM Watson um, focused on machine learning. And in that whole period, I got really excited about the intersection between machine learning and biology. Um, and as I was looking to transition into uh, starting a company after being at these larger tech companies, I decided to make a company that would do faster drug development based on advances in machine learning and also advances in synthetic biology. So I'm happy to tell you more about that. Awesome. Well, you know, maybe before we get into the, the details of your startup, it'd be really interesting to hear some of the technologies you might have worked on, maybe some of the products we might be using sort of day in, day out, and maybe what sort of some analogies you might be starting to see between the conventional tech products or the tech conventional tech-oriented problems, and maybe what, you're, what you saw in bio, whether it's in school or afterwards. Yeah, definitely. So synthetic biology has turned a number of biology challenges into more data-driven challenges. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, we work with cell-free systems. In cell-free systems, that enables you to screen many different conditions, many different constructs, all at very small scale, which allows you to gather a lot of data and have very fast turnaround times on your experimental cycles. And then you can leverage all of this data to be very predictive and intentional about what conditions you choose to do your more labor-intensive components. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think this shift in how we think about biology problems and how we leverage that data really has transitioned many biology challenges, even though not all of them, into ones that look more like engineering computer science companies rather than the traditional way. Uh, very interesting. Now, one of the things that as you start to think about that analogy between tech and biotech, one of the observations I've made in the past has been that in tech, a transistor and its reading is accurate like 99.999% of the time. However, in biotech, if you run the same experiment, whether it's the same measurement or the same synthesis or the same fermentation, every time you're going to have a little bit of noise and deviation, right, from sample to sample. How do you think about that difference in data acquisition and the inherent stochasticity of biology in comparison to perhaps maybe the data sets you might have worked with in a conventional technology-oriented context? <laughs> That's a funny question because I, I think the data that I've seen in biology is actually much less noisy than all of the data that I saw in tech. Really? Um, and it's much easier to parse through to find answers. Also, the questions that we are generally asking about large biology data sets are much simpler than the <laughs> open-ended questions that we were asking in, in tech and trying to, to parse through all this noise to find answers that, that drove business value. So I think in, in biology, really, I think the data sets are pretty streamlined at this point, pretty simple. Like the ones that we work with in self-free systems, we have specific questions around yields and around purity and, and other constraints that we care about. And these are, are pretty simple to train models on, to uh, normalize data, and to predict on. So, you know, maybe from there, Mace, would love it if you could give us maybe a, a quick uh, intro on SwiftScale and uh, how you also sort of came about starting that specific company. 
So SwiftScale does fast drug development. Um, so fast scale up of manufacturing for protein drugs. Normally it takes around $7 million, around 24 months to bring a new, like you know the sequence of the drug that you wanna make. And then you're bringing that antibody, bispecific, enzyme, et cetera, forward to the actual scale you need for a clinical trial and the quality and the cell line. In our case, because we work with cell-free systems, our experimental cycles are much faster, our scale-up is much more consistent, and we can predict the conditions that work best at large scale based on a lot of data that we've gathered in high-throughput screening at smaller scale and in a few tests at a, the leader scale and beyond. Also, this improves purification um, and other downstream components, which normally are very expensive and very uh, time-consuming, and it improves consistency if you're making biosimilars, which is a, a very important point around the post-translational modifications that you can control in cell-free systems. So we're based on work that spun out of uh, Northwestern from Mike Jewett's lab and Cornell from Matthew DeLise's lab to make all of those all those pieces work and fit into the tech-focused mindset that we come at from my background. So I should also mention um, our target is to do all of this development process in one month. So normally it takes 24 months and we want to do it 24 times faster, which saves people cost and a lot of other components and also just gets drugs to patients faster. Um, this is our whole goal. How do we make the ecosystem work much quicker pace, allow people to test out things that otherwise would not ever be able to reach patients at all. And so we hope to work with a lot of different groups um, in a lot of different capacities. We'll work directly with um, CMOs because our system is a drop in replacement to their existing manufacturing processes. So it's much lower risk. Um, we'll also work directly with smaller biotech companies um, and we've begun to work with some larger pharmaceutical partners as well. So we're pretty excited about how this can fit into the ecosystem in multiple different ways and reduce the risk that people would have to take to transition to a new technology from a, a smaller company such as us. Given actually, you know, sort of the, the context that you just shared, cell-free systems are quite promising, right? And have the opportunity to improve agility, speed, time to market, et cetera. What have been some of the changes that you feel in science and our fundamental understanding of the biology over the past few years that has enabled cell-free now to become, in your opinion, you know, a viable solution to manufacturing and biologics development? Yeah, so the big thing that changed um, was synthetic biology, oddly enough. Um, so we work on cell-free systems that have all of the proper post-translational modifications, glycosylation that you'd normally find in a CHO cell, um, and testing out all of the different genes and combinations of genes that would enable you to make a proper antibody, bispecific, et cetera, with every post-translational modification, that would have five years ago been infeasible from a cost perspective and a time perspective. But now all the tools to do that have become so cheap that this was a lot of the work that was done at Northwestern and Cornell before we spun this company out of that technology. Interesting. So, you know, maybe taking one step back, it sounds like obviously SynBio is a critical piece of the solution that you guys are developing. But when it comes to the industry as a whole, you know, I think over the past 10 to 20 years, the domain has seen a Cambrian explosion, if you will, of new modalities, right? that can hopefully provide new options in terms of targeting disease. Historically, industry has been pretty focused around small molecules, right? Far cry from synthetic biology, which we'll get to, I think, again in a minute. But for an industry that has historically been everything from supply chain to research and development to manufacturing to clinical testing, right, has all been focused around small molecules, biologics really has now disrupted a lot of that, right? Can you help us sort of juxtapose some of the changes in the industry and in how we think about medicine when we're going from small chemicals to big biologically derived materials? 
Yeah, so one of the big shifts, if not the big shift, when you move to biologics um, that surprised everyone at first is that your process to actually scale up production of a protein drug is far longer, like takes on the order mm-hmm. of two years and far more expensive on the order of $7 million than it does for a chemical drug, where that process is extremely simple. Also, there's far more variation in protein drugs um, and in your process in general than there is in small molecules. And it's just, in general, there's there's a lot of things around stability and consistency um, that people didn't encounter before. Biologics have been around now for decades, and so people have figured out pretty good ways to, to do a lot of these processes, and it's somewhat developed, um, but there's still ways for us to make that process much faster, much cheaper, while still fitting into a lot of the existing frameworks that people use for, for manufacturing to reduce the risk of transitioning to. This is not an entirely new technology. It's just a way to make that scale up and then manufacturing at thousand liter scale to be uh, much more streamlined, much more data driven, and a lot faster and a lot cheaper. Mm. You know, one of the things that also strikes me as interesting in the context of biologic is simply that I remember meeting the head of supply chain for a major CAR-T startup company, pretty well-known one, publicly traded. And he had previously run supply chain for another similarly sized small molecule focused company. And he's like, you know, Alok, I love, I miss the fact that my cost of goods sold on a small molecule drug is like two cents on every dollar. And I can manufacture three years with the material, let it sit on the shelf. And so I always know I've got access to it. While CAR-T might be a little bit more of the extreme other end of the spectrum where I've literally only got seven days to produce and manufacture and scale up the the compound to then be able to re-deliver to the patient. So, you know, it strikes me that in the context of biologics, you're somewhere in the middle. You know, you don't quite have three years. You have a little bit more time than seven days, but the fact that a lot of them are have to be solution or in solution certainly sounds like a pretty big shift compared to the conventional approaches of the industry. Yeah, so one of the things that we're actually really excited about with Cellfree is that you can scale up a new batch that has high consistency, great yields, and you can do that in like on the order of a week. Mm-hmm. Um, so for infectious diseases that are emergent, instead of having to make huge batches and leaving them in some uh, repository for um, like a year and then redoing that batch, which costs tens of millions of dollars, you can actually respond to new threats in a, a pretty real-time manner wow. um, in a way that fits all of the quality and purity constraints that you would normally uh, require in show-based processes. Oh, that's interesting. You know, So it sounds like I hesitate to use the analogy of like Uber, but on-demand manufacturing of medicines sounds like what you guys could potentially enable. Yeah, so definitely I think it will uh, be very different from Uber. There's a lot more <laughs> regulation that goes into this and a lot more uh, quality constraints that we want to make sure that, that we adhere to. Um, but, so so uh, only four and a half stars <laughs> or above is what, so what you're saying. Yeah, so I think uh, I think definitely we there, there's always a lot of time that goes into making sure the quality is proper. Um, and this is not something that we uh, want to fit into an Uber-like model. But <laughs> absolutely faster manufacturing enables a lot of different applications. Mm-hmm. Um, and that includes bringing new drugs to market that otherwise wouldn't be able to be brought forward. And the cost is also important there, which we help people on. Mm-hmm. Um, and also emerging to new things, whether that's infectious diseases or new disease opportunities that mm-hmm. then we can get to patients far faster um, in a competitive market where there's a lot of different drugs competing against each other that are uh, not so different in terms of the patient populations and targets they're going after. So, you know, now that we've sort of talked a little bit about how drug development has really changed when it comes from the origins of small molecule heading into biologics, can you give us a sense of some of the foundational tools and innovations you guys are leveraging to drive swift scale to the next level? 
Yeah, so it's extremely important that machine learning has has advanced in, in the past few years. And I started this company with a background of seeing how machine learning had enabled a lot of traditionally very hard and labor-intensive problems to be much more data-driven and, and analytical. So I came into this company with the mindset of that. And without the advances in machine learning, we wouldn't be able to do the same predictions that reduce labor in larger batches. Um, we'd be much less good at predicting from 10,000 different data points or 100,000 different data points of all the different conditions that we might be able to produce at a large scale and then only scaling up the ones that work best. In cell-free, you can do this because your conditions generally perform somewhat similarly across multiple scales, all the way from microliters up to hundreds of liters and thousands of liters, which is a little bit uh, crazy, but it's basically a chemical bath, so it makes sense. This wouldn't work at all in Cho, um, where you have the actual cellular environment um, and you have a lot of drift and other, other constraints that go into it. So definitely we needed uh, machine learning and also synthetic biology was extremely important um, in enabling us to do this. Just testing all of the different genes that we needed to test mm -hmm. to ensure that um, we get the right enzymatic mixture for creating the post-translational modifications that you'd normally get in show, which is a extraordinarily hard challenge that we worked on for around a decade at Cornell and Northwestern before spinning out this technology. If you're doing cell-free, it sounds like genomics might not be as big of a part of the data set you guys are analyzing, or am I mistaken in that regard? So we have a bunch of different things that go into our mixture. Some of those components are enzymes. Um, and so we test various different enzymes um, that are important for creating the post-translational modifications. And additionally, we test different conditions, concentrations. Because you're in a cell-free system without a cell wall, yeah. um, you don't have to worry about actually getting things into, like mixed into the cells. So it's, it's a lot simpler to control the environment fully, which gives us a lot more control over what we can do, all the different crazy proteins that we can make from a normal antibody with normal glycosylation to all sorts of weird glycosylation patterns to weird protein constructs. Um, Self-free just opens the door to a lot of different things that normally, if you tested in Cho, you'd have to wait months and it would cost a lot of money. And in Self-free, you can test it in, on the order of hours and you can test a bunch of different variants of that and you can pretty immediately see mm. the yield and you can understand that yield is going to be somewhat consistent at a larger scale as well. Um, so it just has a lot of advantageous properties if you can get it to work. On the other side, that it's much harder to get it to work the first time like it took <laughs> us many years to get this to work because since you don't have a cell membrane your transport of proteins and other uh, chemicals is much more tenuous um, mm -hmm. than it would be otherwise where the cell is making sure that its ribosomes and other uh, protein generating components are happy now in the circumstance of the in terms of machine learning historically we've heard that companies that command the largest data set Right, are going to be able to have the most relevant insights because technology required large data sets to train on before it could give you valuable output. Obviously, there's been a shift in order to enable analytics to work on smaller data sets. What's been your observation in terms of the advancements in the core machine learning technology to enable organizations like yours to work with larger or smaller data sets? So in general, the machine learning algorithms, in addition to just the data science infrastructure, has improved so much in the last five years that it reduces the amount of investment that someone would have to make to bring a, a pretty good analytical basis to any data set. For example, all of the Python tools that I used in my past jobs 
are open source and available to small startup companies like us without us having to recreate all of that infrastructure. In general, compute has become much easier to access, easier to start up, easier to shut down. And this changes the economics of a lot of the data problems that you can go after as a smaller company or as a larger company. For us, it's pretty vital that we have as much data on scale-up conditions and general cell-free parameters as possible, just because it reduces the labor over time of our challenge of scaling up. And without being able to leverage all this data with just like a purely cell-free system um, where we're, we're doing the same experiments every single time, it would be a, a much more expensive and much longer process than all of the learnings that we can share between, which would be difficult in a CHO-based process where you don't actually gather that much data because each time that you're growing cells, um, you have to insert the gene before you've grown them up. And so your experimental cycles and your time between starting an experiment and actually getting the result, it differs from cell-free. So I'd say this is a big shift in general. I mean, we've seen this across a lot of different places in, in uh, different industries from trucking to biology, mm -hmm. where just your ability to leverage this data mm -hmm. is much easier for a startup company than it was many years ago, just because all of the infrastructure is there and a lot of the data sets are, are easier to access as well. Now, it sounds like as part of sort of SwissScale's foundation, in addition to leveraging sort of best of reason machine learning tools, you guys are also taking advantage of some of the innovations in the synthetic biology space as well. Can you give us a sense of maybe some of the more prominent sort of improvements or innovations in that domain that has enabled SwiftScale to be successful today? Yeah, so that's really simple. The cost of uh, gene synthesis has gone down dramatically in the last five years. So if we ran an experiment and wanted to test a bunch of different enzymes that create variable glycosylation or other post-translational modifications, we would have had to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, to fully explore that. It has been much easier for us to test these things now because the cost is so much cheaper and we can run much larger libraries and also we can run one-off experiments with much less investment. So that's been the big shift. I think that also just enables a bunch of different opportunities that revolve around recreating complex processes both mm -hmm. in cell-free and in other constructs where you have to test a bunch of different enzymes to figure out how to best create some protein. It's like a pretty common problem in the industry and you were talking about uh, different opportunities for manufacturing. So we leverage this for one specific use case and there are many other use cases where this is enabling. Oh, very cool. It's surprising, but also heartening to hear that just that one improvement in sort of cost and speed has enabled so much innovation built mm -hmm. on top of it as a consequence. Yeah, but if you think about semiconductors, right, like mm -hmm. the same shift in the cost enabled like a lot of different computer applications in ways that like no one would have predicted in the first few years. Mm -hmm. um, and we're probably seeing the, the exact same thing here. Like I don't think anyone would have predicted that lowering the cost of gene synthesis would have <laughs> enabled a cell-free manufacturing system to come forward that will be able to yeah. fully recreate an antibody. And there's lots of other one-off things that very creative people are working on now. Now, it's interesting that you sort of mention sort of cost, because at least in the context of semiconductors, because I definitely agree with you that it's both issue of cost, but then also in parallel an issue of also technology that enabled purity. If semiconductors, when you manufacture a silicon wafer, had 10x, you know, right now I think it's something like, one out of a billion atoms is an impurity. If it was one out of a hundred million, right, we might not have the same technology that we had today. I bring up that analogy in part because, you know, there's a lot of talk in science, especially around reproducibility and being able to take 
both a data-driven approach, but also perhaps a more engineering mindset to pursuit of new knowledge. Any insight or opinion there from SwiftScale around reproducibility and how some of these technologies can help improve it or monitor it, track it, et cetera? My honest answer is I think that's an extremely complex problem. And some people will say that data is the answer to everything. Um, (laughs) But from my observations at the tech companies that I've been at before, there were other market factors that were uh, true there that are not true in the pharma industry. So I I'm actually somewhat somewhat skeptical about this being a larger shift. I think data tools, machine learning, synthetic biology in general, enable very specific applications. And there's often talk about broader implications, but I think something that isn't highly specific and directly enabled um, is often we've seen throughout history that, that people overstate these changes. But at the same time, a lot of different smaller focused companies that are working on specific problems does often enable a wholesale change. So these things emerge from the parts rather than from the top, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I think it's interesting in that I think a lot of leadership, whether it's in pharma or biotech or academia, especially, we all sort of and they all pay lip service to reproducibility. But at the end of the day, in terms of making a priority to your point, it's not quite on the high of the list. I think it's got to be individuals who, from the academic setting forward, recognize the importance of having this sort of mindset and attention to detail and documentation and data, right? That perhaps uh, moves the needle longer term. Yeah, and I think on that point, something we're really excited about is enabling academics to uh, bring forward drugs to clinical trials in ways Mm -hmm. where they they couldn't before. And part of the reason why this reproducibility challenge is that things move hands between so many different people that often something is actually reproducible in a specific lab, but just moving over those protocols to somewhere else has to recreate it is so challenging. But if you have the same person who has their hands on it from the start to finish, In our case, we can enable a lot more drugs to reach clinical trials because there's all sorts of wacky drug ideas that people have in academia, (laughs) some of which should advance to clinical trials, some of which shouldn't. And we're pretty excited about enabling many more of those to reach clinical trials and otherwise would be possible and otherwise would have to go through this huge process of fundraising, manufacturing, Mm -hmm. um, can do it in a much simpler, lower cost way, lower time way with us. As you talked a little bit about the, broadly speaking, the tech transfer problem of of knowledge and materials and processes having to move from hands to hand in a, a lot of cases, especially manufacturing, it brings to mind one of the issues that I've seen, especially amongst folks who work in Silicon Valley, especially from a technology perspective, feel that biologists are making a lot of mistakes if they can't make their work reproducible, scalable, lower, lower cost, because there's just a different perspective when you have Moore's Law versus Eram's Law, right? Now, I'm curious, like in your view, having seen both sides of the fence, and it sounds like having an appreciation for the actual difficulties of doing tech transfer, as an example, what are some of the telltale opportunities that you see for improvement in a biology context that you think we can learn from the tech industry? My honest answer here is I think the problems that technology companies generally solve and the problems that biology companies generally solve are very different and the market forces that drive both of those are very different and structurally they're extremely, extremely different. And that last one may actually be the most important piece. And I don't think that this is a a technology challenge at all. Um, I think that machine learning, computer science, data tools in general enable very specific applications such as ours. But 
in a broader sense, how they're going to impact reproducibility is much in general, like automation tasks. Yeah, like that is robotics has improved a lot, is continuing to improve. It's still not that great. In the next 10 years, we'll probably see a lot more automation, which then may make things more reproducible. But just in general, the thing that people talk about with tracking experiments and having that data in one place that can be accessed multiple parties. There are many other factors that go into that that I think people underestimate. <laughs> so, you know, as you think about the scenario in which your company is obviously investing very heavily in machine learning, for example, and there's obviously a lot of other pharmaceutical and biotech companies who are uh, looking to make similar investments and recruit top-notch talent. What would be some of your advice to other folks and executives in the biotech industry who want to be able to bring and recruit top-notch talent from some of these sorts of companies into their domain? What do you think is uh, the activities or the, the position that they should take to be able to attract the best and the brightest? In general, thinking through some of my friends who have both left tech companies to join pharmaceutical biotech companies um, and ones who uh, have not yet made that shift but are considering that path, I think people are really excited about the applications in general. I mean, this was the main reason that I shifted. Like, I wanted to work on large health problems. I wanted to work on cancer, autoimmune disorders, neurological conditions. I didn't want to work on ads. Mm -hmm. I think there are many people who have that exact same mindset as me. I think often pharmaceutical industry companies, biotech companies, often underestimate the perks that go into working somewhere like Google or Facebook in addition to the salary. Being able to have your dog at work, being able to work from home if you have a plumber who needs to come and fix something, being able to have extremely flexible hours, being able to have a lot of autonomy in what you do and a lot of access to different parts of the organization, being able to have access to data in a, a pretty broad sense across an organization that's traditionally somewhat more or, um, top driven and in general being able to work on open source projects mm -hmm. all are things that are as essential as that salary component and I think are very hard to recreate in any industry like if a tech company was started decades ago and had to switch its culture to the current tech ecosystem those companies have as large of an issue attracting talent as pharmaceutical and biotech companies do. And pharmaceutical and biotech companies have this advantage of these applications that people really understand and want to work on. But having a culture that matches what tech workers expect is very, very hard. You know, it's, it's great to hear that. It sounds like easily soluble, at least from a perk standpoint. Obviously, culture is a, it's a far more thorny topic. But the bigger part that I've at least observed, which I'd imagine you'd agree, is that the mission is second to none when it comes to ameliorating disease, right, and influencing human health. Uh, I find a lot of people are very much attracted in a magnetic way to that mission. So at least there's something that the industry has going for it. Yeah, exactly. I think people are extremely excited about health problems and they are extremely unexcited about working on ads more. So I'd say <laughs> <laughs> it should be easy to recruit people away, given that all of the other pieces match up their expectations. So maybe the last question I've got here before we wrap up is, do you think we're in the golden age of biotech right now? So I think a lot of people say that we're in the golden age of biotech. And I think the honest truth from what I've observed is that there are specific applications that are possible now that were not possible before. I really honestly don't know, won't know for another five to 10 years, whether there are a hundred different applications and all of those combined enable a large scale shift, or if there's only a few and we just happen to be one of those. I think generally like the age of something is enabled by very specific applications that emerge 
that no one would have necessarily predicted. And if if anyone is saying that there's some broad sweeping change that will enable a, a wholesale shift, imagine someone saying that before cars came out. Like it just it's not something that is easily observable. And so really we just have to we have to wait and see if this mm-hmm. is is something that actually comes about. That's that's a really good point. It sounds like we need to take a retrospective view, right, as opposed to being in it. One of the interesting answers I once heard from a, uh, a guest was they said to the effect that I don't know if we're in the golden age. And ultimately, yes, there's a lot of money going in. Yes, yes, there's a lot of activity to your point. But what really will determine whether we're in the golden age or not is if there's a lot of new medicines that get to patients. And to your point, only retrospectively can we measure that to be able to determine whether we truly were in a golden age or not. Yeah, and I would argue also that the traditional ways of making medicines, whether that is antibodies or small molecules, still has a lot of opportunity there. Um, And it can be a golden age of bringing new medicines forward as long as the times and the costs in doing drug development for those processes are low. Um, And even reducing those by a small amount enables many more things to come forward. And so I think you don't necessarily need this wholesale shift to have that emerge. It's it's as much a market structure and economics problem as it is a, a technology problem. That's a great point and I think also a great closing note for today. Thanks so much for joining us and looking forward to hopefully having you on again in the next maybe couple months and years as SwiftScale Bio uh, grows and matures. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by Alok Tai. It's produced by Jean Merlane, edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.